All right. Well, I just had a marvelous conversation with Sarah Roberts. I'm going to let her explain to you who she is and what she does before we jump into the full recording. My name is Sarah T. Roberts. I'm an associate professor at UCLA of Information Studies with affiliations with Gender Studies and Labor Studies. And I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, which we call C2I2. In 2019, in June of 2019, my book, Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media, was released from Yale Press. And it's the culmination of an eight-year trajectory, uh, including uh, field research that uh, lays out the theory and the phenomenon of commercial content moderation of social media and its implications, not only for the people who do it, but for the people who use social media, which really are all of us at this point. So if this is your first time tuning in, welcome. This is a series around AI ethics and AI governance. We are hoping to explore the major questions that come up from AI, from the tools that are around it and other related technologies. The way that we're doing this is by getting some of the best and brightest minds in the field to come on here and talk with me about what it is they're doing, what they're researching, where they work, their specific sectors of work, and how they see the current landscape, what the ecosystem looks like through their eyes. So we can try to create some best practices as we move forward and AI and these related technologies continue to eat up more and more of our daily lives. One thing that I will mention is the conversation does not stop here. If you would like to stay in touch and share your voice around AI ethics, AI governance, or related technologies, these big questions that we're facing as a society at whole, as a humankind at whole, please join us in our Slack community. You can find the links to that below. And the last thing that I will say is that we have got an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is an AI benchmarking firm. If it wasn't for them, we would not be here. We would definitely not have the high quality, high quality, high caliber guests that we have on right now. Are you a robot? There's so many deep questions that I want to explore with the theme of your book and the research that you're doing. But I think maybe we should start, first of all, by hearing about how you got into this and how you, did you stumble upon it? Or maybe let's just even a step further back. What exactly got you into studying about this? The way that I came into academia uh, was sort of a, uh, a second act, if you will, in my own life. Uh, I didn't go straight through from undergrad to grad school. I took about a 10-year break. Uh, initially, when I, when I finished college, I had in mind that I would like to do further study, and I thought I needed about a year off. Well, that turned into 10 years. <laughs> and it turned into, yeah, it turned into 10 years of, you know, I hesitate to call it a career because I think that glamorizes it, but 10 years of work 
mm. in information technology. And, you know, if we map this onto kind of calendar time, we're talking about the late 90s into okay. the early 2000s, um, mid-2000s. I, I finished school and, uh, you know, I graduated with, with degrees in the humanities and with a social science background to a certain extent, but mostly in the humanities. But pretty much from the start of my undergraduate studies, I was involved in computing. Mm. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of board of attempts at, at taking a, the, the weeder CS class as an undergrad. Uh, it was this like blip in time when, uh, when computer science departments were trying to use C++ for those classes, it was just oh, yeah. horrible. Um, you know, it was not a place for me really that felt comfortable. Um, and I, and it was a time when you had to go to a computer lab to program because you didn't have compilers and so on, uh-huh. on your, on your own computer. So I was going down to the computer science building and I tallied my time spent once writing a, a program I'll never forget it. I mean, it was for a fake travel agency. And so I was writing this computer program and I spent about 21 hours that week doing that on top of my job, on top of, you know, a lot of other homework. I was taking a a French poetry seminar, 17th century French poetry uh, with about six people in it. And I remember going to the professor and, you know, telling her, I needed more time on something or whatever. And I took the, the printout of my computer program with me to show her, you know, what that looked like on paper. And she pretty much told me, you, you know, you have to choose, is it going to be French or, or computer science? Well, oh, wow. I, I of course made the lucrative and career defining choice of choosing French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me, you know, meanwhile, Meanwhile, I had taken the first, very first HTML class ever offered at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, It was interestingly in the journalism department. Mm. And everyone, almost everyone I knew who had been in that class either was graduating, a graduating senior or uh, a graduate student already, uh, or even might have been an undergrad, but they all up and went to San Francisco and to the Bay for the first mm-hmm. kind of web point, web 1.0 explosion. And again, you know, I was getting these messages from everyone, come out here, come out here. And I was like, no, I, I really have to finish my French degree. <laughs> now, now we laugh now, right? But if you can see the visual behind me, you'll see that the first foreign language edition of my book is in French. I was actually going to ask about that. Yeah, <laughs> That's no coincidence. <laughs> you know, That's in part because I was able to go uh, speak with a, with an editor at, at the, at the press that, that printed this and, um, you know, be, uh, be able to communicate. So kids, it pays to study other languages yes. other than computing languages. <laughs> Yes. So yeah, that's I'm a big you know, of that too. Yeah, right. So that like that's kind of like the real background. The background is that I was a humanities major who was fascinated by social computing mm. and uh fascinated by having access to um, you know, serious computing in the form of Unix shell account that I could goof around with. Um, you know, the early social internet. Again, that that was the early 90s, and I thought 
I'd really missed its heyday, which is yeah. funny. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I'm such a late comer to the internet in 1993. <laughs> um, but anyway, all of that meant that when I graduated from college, I had a skill set that was different from my peers. Um, and so I was able to be hired into kind of an information technology role. But it was a role that uh, didn't hold a lot of glamour. Mm. It didn't hold a lot of uh, remuneration. It was pretty poorly paid, low status, uh, support work. And it was, um, you know, despite all the promise that I'd heard that if you were good at computers, you should be financially uh, stable and yeah. yeah. And you should have an upward tra trajectory that that would be unstoppable. I found myself, uh, struggling in all sorts of ways. It's almost like some of these other, uh, identifiers might, uh, you know, might be structural barriers to mm -hmm. success in the United States. You know what I mean? And so, um, wait, is that I what piqued your interest into going into well, more so of this? I think, you know, in retrospect, and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think that the reason that I was sensitive to um, this particular story and this particular stratum of workers was because I knew something about being um, a mission critical technical worker mm -hmm. whose work was uh, devalued and not identified as being as important as it was. And so oh, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, long story short, I ended up back in graduate school. Uh, I was just going to go in for a master's degree and kind of try to do something to, um, you know, to, to kind of enhance my professional credentials, frankly. And it turned out that I, I actually turned around and quit my last full-time technical job as a project manager and went back to school full time, which was really scary because I was into my thirties already. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, I went on to, to pursue a PhD at the university of Illinois I school. And, uh, that's where I read an article in the New York times in the summer of 2010 about a group of workers working in a, what for all intents and purposes sounded like it was, a call center warehouse in rural Iowa, right next door to where I was sitting in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. And it was, you know, a really short, brief article, but it was very compelling because it told me, number one, there are workers in Iowa working essentially in the social media industry. Hmm. Number two, they're doing this under wraps and they're doing it at remove. They're doing it as third party contractors and they're doing it geographically removed from where we think kind of the epicenter of this work takes place. And number three, uh, it sounds like, according to the article, that they are experiencing deleterious effects psychologically from the work they're doing, which was, in fact, looking at reviewing and adjudicating social media content destined for unknown platforms, unnamed websites, et cetera, that users were uploading. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think my own background, as well as, you know, my own demographics, I'm from Wisconsin. Those people could be my cousins based on the way they look and sound, <laughs> um, you know, and they're probably their, their family backgrounds. Uh, all of those things contributed 
to my interests. And then I would say kind of the, the final piece in the puzzle was that I knew what was and was not, more importantly, was not computationally possible in 2010 around automation. Uh So as soon as I read about this issue, having been on the social internet since 1993, and this was 2010 already, so I was coming up on 20 years, uh, I knew that it would be impossible for computers alone, much less, um, you know, like completely automated systems or much less leaving it open Mm -hmm. um, for that to be the paradigm. It had to be humans and there had to be a mechanism that platforms were using to intervene upon content that they themselves didn't want on their sites for issues of brand management and uh, business-to-business relationships that they had with their actual clients who are advertisers, of course. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's, that's interesting that you talk about that and that's how it, it kind of seems like you just fell into it from being neighbors with one of these centers and, and then you decided to investigate. What happened there and yes. how long did it take you to write this book? Well, yeah, I mean, the, and that's kind of, you know, unwittingly where the story began that I couldn't have predicted would, would, would last this long, but it's probably a good thing I didn't know that because maybe I wouldn't have taken <laughs> it on. Uh, uh, you know, the geographic proximity to me, uh, both where I lived in Wisconsin and where I, I was studying in Illinois, Uh, made it seem like maybe this was a group of people I could find and speak to. Mm. Um, It turned out that I never was able to speak to any of the people who worked at the company profiled in that article. And Mm. uh, despite really trying in a lot of, you know, different ways, I think that that you were writing the book. Yeah. I mean, er, no. And early on, early on, that's my plan was, look, I've got no research money. I'm a graduate student. You know, I don't have a lot of resources, but I do have a car. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I could potentially drive to that area, um, you know, speak to these folks, do a research study that way. But first I have to recruit them and, and get them interested in talking to me. And I, I couldn't do it. And I suspected that after that story came out, that there was likely an edict. Yeah, there was an edict from management or something that was like, don't go talking about this again. Uh, so, so, you know, in terms of writing the book, the book is, is, um, kind of a recapitulation and a lengthening, uh, and deepening of, of my dissertation research. So there are kind of stops along the road. You know, I did the, the, the dissertation in 2014, uh, after about two years of, of, of collecting interviews with, uh, various people at various positions in uh, the social media world who were working around in as supervising, et cetera, uh, commercial content moderators. And I think the were, action- it might be important for us just to take a pause right there and talk about what moderators are just for those. Yeah. I think we all kind of have a good idea because that New York Times article was so important (laughs) and so big in 2010 and it shined a light on a lot of things, but it it might just be nice to hear from your point of view what they are and why they're important. Sure. Yeah. So, and and, you know, I, I, I think it's good that you, 
you underline that because I don't think that it was obvious uh, by design who, what, you know, to what extent uh, this was going on and where we would draw a circle around it to call it a thing, you know, it was sort of nebulous. Um, so part of the work for me early on was to kind of do that definitional process and decide what does it mean to be a commercial content moderator? Well, I'll tell you what it means is that you are a person who works in an intermediary capacity, typically between a user and the platform for which their material is destined, where they think, you know, where they've uploaded basically their, uh, their posts, their images, their videos, their live streams, et cetera. You kind of sit in, in this in-between space uh, as an adjudicator of that content. Typically and early on, especially the, the role of a person who did this work was to be um, receptive and reactive. So you sort of waited until somebody uh, reported a piece of content as being problematic, abusive, vulgar, disturbing, breaking of some sort of rules of a site or norms that they had. Uh, and, and probably most everyone listening to this has had the experience of coming across something on a, on a social media site that seemed to not be appropriate or not belong. And you as a user, you can usually go and click and report that material. Well, that report that you file as a user starts this whole process of sending that material basically into a queue with all the other <laughs> reports and someone is on the other end receiving those reports, evaluating the claim of what's wrong with the content against the content and against the rules of the site, using all of these human capacities, things like language skill, cultural knowledge, um, the ability to kind of make meaning from abstract symbols, uh, knowing something about maybe pop culture or headlines, all of that goes into the mix. And within a matter of seconds, they make a decision about whether that content essentially should stay or should go. So it's like a really complex set of uh, inputs, but the output is really like a, it, typically a binary decision, up or down, stay or go, uh, delete or keep. And these people make these decisions hundreds, thousands of times a day about content. But the thing that makes it distinct from other kinds of you know, practices that go all the way back to the origin of the social internet around community governance and, and uh, kind of self-policing of behavior is that these workers that I call commercial content moderators are doing this work for pay. They're doing it in an organized uh, fashion uh, and they are doing it um, typically at scale. So we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people needed to do this work for the major platforms. Um, typically, another characteristic that they share is that their work is low status and low wage comparative, mm -hmm. comparatively uh, speaking with regard to other functions that might exist at their companies, the engineers, the product development team, uh, even the people who set the policy against which they adjudicate. Well, it's interesting also that you you mentioned and there's a lot of third parties that are happening. In That's this. right. And so it's like the person, let's use our, our friends at Facebook, 
as an example, and because everyone loves them these days. And so Facebook is not really going out and hiring thousands and thousands of people to do this. They're hiring a third party service to go and find these thousands and thousands of people. And this third party service, of course, like any business is trying to make the most profit it can. So you're not working for Facebook. If you right. are one of these moderators, you're just getting all of the worst parts of Facebook every day into your brain, right? So yeah, it's, that was a big distinction too. That um, it, it's not always the case, but it is uh, overwhelmingly common for that work to be basically outsourced hmm. uh, to third parties. It be it's contractors who are doing the job, even when those people you know, might be driving in or riding in on the company bus to the headquarters every day, they are going in, you know, it's kind of a gallows humor situation, but they're going in with, as, as some of the workers told me, with the wrong color badge, mm. you know, the proximity badge. They don't have the right colored badge to get the free sushi and to use the climbing wall. I mean, that's the example they gave. They were like, we sit right near the climbing wall, but we can't use it because we're contractors. Oh, and also we don't get health insurance. Mm. So yeah. that was a big, you know, that was a big feature too. This this um, kind of diminished responsibility function that uh, the outsourcing provides, that plausible deniability of, well, these people don't really work for us. They work mm -hmm. for blah, blah, you know, labor provision company or whatever firm. Uh that's a big feature, if you will, in, in quotes, right? That's a big feature of the way that this phenomenon has been set up and articulated over the past decade. And, you know, just to answer the first, the, the first part of your question that you asked at the top, it was how long did it take to write the book? To write the book, it really only took a year, l less than that, you know, um, to write a couple of, of drafts and then for it to go through the process into production took a little less than a year. But what took so long was um, what came before, which was number one, discovering the phenomenon was happening thanks to that article. Number two, figuring out all the places in which it was happening under all mm -hmm. kinds of different names. So there wasn't a cohesive name. Um, yeah. Commercial content moderation is it's a moniker I came up with as a catch-all to identify all of the places and different nuances of how this work was being undertaken. And then certainly not least was the difficulty in finding people who were able to speak to me. And that was because so many companies put these workers under non-disclosure agreements that, you know, for them to kind of come talk to someone like me and give me true insight into their work conditions and the expectations of what they do and its uh, impact on, on them, all of that was violating the conditions of their employment. So, you know, I really had to provide a lot of reassurance to them that I would never reveal uh, who they were, where they actually worked. So in my book, you know, I, I use pseudonyms. I talk about a place in Silicon Valley called Megatech, <laughs> which is obviously not a real name, but, um, you know, anecdotally, uh, I've been in situations now over the years where I might be mixing with people from industry, from Silicon Valley, maybe in an event or something. And invariably at kind of the wine and cheese 
uh, after parties or whatever, someone will come up to me and whisper in my ear, we're Megatech, aren't we? My company's Megatech. And I've had like six different companies say that. Yeah. So, so it tells me, wow, everybody in the Valley is dealing with this issue who's in the social media space. Hmm. So Megatech is, is, is all of you really. Well, and I want to also dive in on that a little bit deeper and talk about how it's not just the social media companies, is it? It's also like press. And I was quite surprised to hear about that, how it, it's much more than the social media companies. When we yeah. think about it, we instantly think about social media because that's where it's almost out of control how easy it is for me to upload things. And you hear horror stories of live streams that are just atrocious. But then there's also press. And can you break down how it's being used there? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, in, uh, in, in one of the earliest conversations I had uh, with, with folks who were involved in this industry, one of the first people I, I talked to was a person who was uh, an executive at a, at a digital or at a, basically at a, at a traditional company uh, in, in news media, but who worked on the digital mm-hmm. side of things. And, uh, and it was absolutely like a crisis for this company and its properties, you know, that uh, at the time there was a real expectation that, you know, any newspaper or magazine or any kind of news medium would have a website that, completely allowed the general public basically to interact and to Hmm. comment. And um, that's really not, I I, I would say that's probably not even the status quo anymore. And the reason it's not in part is because as this person very bluntly told me, in no uncertain terms, and now I quote, if you open a hole on the internet, it gets filled with shit. And that was like the first interview I did for the book, you know what I mean? And I was like, you know, it blew my mind because talk about summing up the problem. Yeah. And there's a person that, that in the book um, primarily works on a news site and on a, a news and information site where she's, you know, she's working in kind of the old school text comments it's not even a media like a media rich mm-hmm. site it's she's not on social media site per se it's it's a news media site and even that was like incredibly challenging because you know she she kind of told me you could put up the most innocuous story in the world fire firefighter saves kitten from tree <laughs> you know and the first comment would invariably be something like obama's a muslim kill all the gays you know, and she's like, this person was supposed to be part-time on this job. And she said, what I'm doing is constantly working because the idea that other people would have to see this crap, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility to get in there and clean it up so that this is even a usable site, much less, you know, people being exposed to things that impugn their very identity, which is what uh, this, you know, that kind of invective did with, with regard to her as a person who identified as queer, a woman, 
a working class person, a person in solidarity uh, with people marginalized based on race and ethnicity. So, you know, she was the things she was cleaning up essentially were all things that were like telling her she didn't deserve to basically breathe air. And, uh, and, and this was on again, a very, uh, mainstream news media site that in large part wasn't even that controversial in terms of what it was, what it was presenting, but it was just an endless stream of misbehavior. Well, and that brings up the question that I was going to ask you around is what the moderators are doing. Is this just a futile effort? Because potentially what you're talking about right there, that could just be bots, right? That are built. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It, they're built to do that. And it's not as easy to create a bot to moderate. There are attempts happening. I do. I will say that that is very much what AI is going towards. Right. And I know firsthand because a friend of mine was working on a project earlier this year uh, when the pandemic hit and it was all about hateful memes and how he was trying to train a machine learning algorithm to detect if a meme was hateful or not, if it had hate speech in it. And that is an insanely difficult problem because of... Oh, yeah. And it's exactly what you talked about earlier is how there's so many cultural things that you need to keep in context, so many language things like nuances. And it's really, really difficult to make sure that a machine can pick up on all of that and make the right decision. And so if you have a picture along with text and then it's all inside of this cultural bubble. And so what I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is how easy it is to fill up the hole with shit, but how difficult it is to clean it and be the plumber. I mean, amen, exactly. And you're right that, um, you know, if if we, I started the work in 2010, we're a decade on. So clearly, um, you know, I don't mean to suggest that uh, there are not computational tools that are a part of this ecosystem now. They absolutely, there absolutely are. Mm. And um, they can do certain things very, very well. But other things are a huge challenge for some of the reasons you just laid out. You know, I think about something like a meme. Let's talk about what that usually is. Well, it's usually a static image. Um, it might be an image that has been reproduced so many times that you know it's quali- the quality of it itself is starting to degrade and and has lossiness to it um often a meme will also include text but that text is is created and then becomes essentially an an image part of the image it's mm-hmm. not actually readable as text as such yeah exactly and so you know the complexity there the 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 nuance the irony the 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 uh the momentary uh, relevance of, of a meme, all of those things, so challenging, uh, challenging for a human to make sense of, much less a machine. Machines, like I said, they're good at certain things. Um, some things they're better at it than others. But uh, I'll tell you one of the peculiar outcomes of the introduction of more and more computational moderation over the past few years. Um, 
earlier, I kind of described where those human moderators sit as in this intermediary space mm-hmm. where a lot of times they're dealing in a reactive mode to things that have been reported. What the computational tools uh, based on, as you said, like machine learning data sets uh, based on other kinds of AI techniques, uh, what what they're good at doing is uh, is you know being kind of calibrated to particular type of material, yeah. and then you kind of let it loose on a platform, and it goes out and it does what you just asked it. It goes and finds all that material. Well, what it ends up doing, in many cases, is calling material absolutely that you know match the parameters. But it might be, let's say, it's a video someone uploaded, and it got zero hits, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like hanging out there. Um, that's a really different kind of risk and impact factor than a video that's viral. Yeah. So, you know, what happens is these tools go out and they kind of like proactively gather the stuff up, but that still needs human vetting. So in this weird way, this promise of, oh, well, you know, we'll get to a point where computers can do this instead of like relieving the burden of human moderation, it's actually made a greater case for it and a greater need for more people to now go and vet all the stuff the the uh, computational tools are pulling down even though maybe it was just like hanging out there with no engagement it was never so, flagged but yeah it was it, never it, flagged yeah. yeah yeah so it's just like hanging out right it's like the with the free if the tree falls down in the forest <laughs> and no one's there does it make a sound so yeah. you know uh so it's pretty kind it's pretty ironic that what everyone promised, which is just wait till computers can do this better and will uh, unburden the human moderators is kind of the opposite. Now we've got more of a logic to have even more people, not to mention the people involved in training the, the mach- machine learning algorithm by mm-hmm. adjudicating the data sets. Yeah. So now we've got that front so. end need too. Yeah. And that is a perfect segue into this whole part about how detrimental it is to be exposed to this on a daily basis. And so you're talking about everyone from the machine learning engineer or the data scientist who is looking at this data and cleaning the data and doing everything that you need to be able to create the AI that goes out and finds all of these bad pieces that have been uploaded. And then more exposed or even worse, I would say, are the ones who are having to decide whether or not this is harmful. And I think that that is something, I can't remember if it was in that New York Times article where they talked about how you see a significantly higher rate of depression amongst these, uh, these groups of people that are doing it. You see a significantly higher, just like they they are not living in a healthy environment. And it's very clear because if you had to sit and look at the horrible atrocities of humankind every day for eight hours a day, it would be very hard to go home and have a smile on your face, I think. Yeah, I mean, really, there are kind of two outcomes possible as far as I can see it for someone who's doing that work. The first outcome is that you kind of, at a point, you hit a wall. You know, you're just like, I've had it. That can come sooner or later, depending on a lot of factors about who you are as a person, 
you know, what you get exposed to, your tolerance for, for some things over another, et cetera. But, you know, let's say at some point you just hit the wall and you're like, I'm done. That's one outcome. But I think even more disturbing and worrisome is the opposite outcome, which is the outcome of becoming desensitized yes. or inured to the content, which, you know, not only does that make you not a very effective moderator anymore, it kind of on a larger scale is very, you know, it's worrisome for you psychologically at that point. Like you're inured from seeing some of the worst behaviors and worst self-expressions of humanity. That's, we don't, I mean, do we really want to create a whole class of people for whom that is the case? Mm -hmm. uh, what will that mean about collective empathy? You know, what will that mean about the, the, the well-being of those people themselves? It's not as if this job involves every single image or video you see being abhorrent. Uh, in fact, what some of the participants who, who uh, you know, offered their insights to me through the, the auspices of the study said was that, in fact, it can be incredibly boring work. It can be incredibly rote so that you almost feel like, uh, as, one, as one participant said, it, it almost feels like factory work. You're just, it's repetitive. You just do the same thing over and over again. But then what could even happen is you're kind of doing repetitive, low-grade offensive or low-grade rule-breaking material, or maybe even material that doesn't break any rules, but someone reported it for who knows why. And you're kind of clicking through that and doing your thing. And then suddenly you hit on an image or a video that's, that's incontrovertibly horrible. Mm. And it's almost like the juxtaposition of that mundane wrote, um, you know, uh, harmless or, or low grade kind of material versus the really shocking and abhorrent. It's that like juxtaposition that is so jarring and so upsetting and in a lot of ways, the workers didn't really have a way to prepare psychologically for that emotionally because you don't really know what's going to be the next thing in the queue. You don't really know what the next thing that you have to make a decision about will be. Mm. And that uncertainty even, that uncertainty, that sense that, mm. oh, my God, this, this click could bring something that really is going to bother me. You know, the anticipation of that, all of those things, it's like you said, when, when a person leaves work and goes home, Tell me what the technique is to extract that out of your brain. Yeah. You know, it, it's one thing when you're working on the assembly line to use that factory metaphor again, you know, you're, you're on the assembly line, your shift ends, you kind of shut down the mechanical parts of where you work or you hand that over to someone else and you step away. And when you go home that night, you're not really going to be engaging with that uh, repetitive motion or those uh, those tools or, or systems that you were using. But when you're a commercial content moderator and you go home, you can't really cleanse your brain in the same way. No. And, and, and that was becoming, becoming a struggle, even though the people were telling me, Hey, I can handle this. I'm fine. Yeah, they they really, they didn't seem to be. There's this piece of it too. I, and I think you make a great point around, do we really want a society that is de like they are desensitized to these kind of things and then there's this other piece of it like you're saying you're on edge because you don't know what's coming up next and then you go home and it's really hard to take that edge off 
and to not think that when you walk around the corner, something might jump up at you because your brain has been stimulated like that for the whole day or for the whole month or for the whole past year. And so it automatically is, it has created those neural pathways, right? It is something that your, your brain is very malleable. And yeah, it's a, like a muscle memory thing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it, I think it happens, uh, kind of unconsciously it happens without intent hmm. um just based on the repetitiveness of of the of the episodes you know i i talked to a woman just this phenomenal person that i met who um whose story isn't in the book because it happened after you know the draft was done um but i although i was able to make mention of her towards the end uh conclusion but this story didn't make it in so I'll tell it now. Uh, I met up with her uh, over some Mexican food, margaritas, whatever, and we were talking about her experience having having led a team of moderation uh, folks at MySpace mm. when MySpace was a big thing. So mm-hmm. this puts us back in time somewhat as well, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, she was actually the first kind of team lead for content moderation at MySpace, mm-hmm. which at, at, like so many companies have done, you know, realized they had this issue as an afterthought and they were like, oh no. And they quickly, you know, created a team to deal with it. So this woman that I met was leading that team and she was also training new employees and so on. Well, by the time I met her a couple of years ago, obviously MySpace was a, a concern of the past in, in you know, almost Totally. I mean, I think it still existed in name, but you know, and this woman had become a bookkeeper. She was a bookkeeper. Uh, And she said to me, well, you know, after I quit MySpace for about three years, anytime I met anyone, I wouldn't shake their hand. Mm. And she kind of looked at me with this knowing look, like I was supposed to just completely get what she was saying. Well, unfortunately for me, I kind of did get it because I've been doing this for so long, but you know, for the sake of, of the research and for the sake of giving her a certain voice and said, well, tell me more about what you mean by that, you know, explain. She said, well, yeah, I won't shake people's hand when I meet them because I see what people do. I've seen what people do and people are nasty and I don't want to touch a stranger's hand. Wow. <laughs> so talk about like, like a consequence this is actually a thing that completely was isolating her you know into into the accounting books of you know freelancing as an accountant and a bookkeeper so she wouldn't have to deal with folks not shaking people's hands i mean and we're talking right now in in high covid so i think that might not sound as odd as it did at the <laughs> time bad, which no. <laughs> yeah it's shocking but we get it, right? Like it's the same, but it's the same, you know, it's like the same idea. It's like a viral, a viral transmission of something that you don't want to touch, yeah. you know? And, and she got that way, not because of, you know, like her own experience catching something, but because just because she saw people's behavior and it completely altered her own and it, it altered in effect, like her, um, 
relationship to the world. Yeah. I think, I don't think it's too, I don't think it's too strong to say that. Right. Like yeah, she reoriented. Exactly that. That's really a great point because nothing from what I understand of this is that nothing, if you were to talk to her, it wouldn't be like, Oh, there's something wrong with this woman. It's just that she was like a, uh, and this is, this may be not the best metaphor, but it's like the dogs that are, or anything that is beaten when it's young and then it has fear of the world. And it is like you try and go out and you want to be, you want to put that behind you. But if you've been so exposed to it for so long, it is very hard to cleanse yourself of it. And so that's, I appreciate you sharing that story. I feel like this was the uh, bonus set of the DVD that we just got. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the things that, you know, couldn't make it in just because of time or, or length considerations. But, you know, I've had occasion just as those like uh, company insiders have sidled up to me and asked if they're megatech, you know, I've, I've encountered a lot of folks who, when they know who I am or they meet me, they're like, oh my God, I worked as that, I did that job for mm. blah, blah company or, um, you know, a friend of mine or a loved one of mine was doing that job. Um, you, you know, like I'm really cautious around uh, like putting a di- an armchair diagnosis on things because I'm absolutely not trained as a psychologist. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as a researcher, I'm really, really conscious of like how to stay in my lane and not use certain terms or, or, or try to uh, diagnose, but I'm also like a human being, you know, I'm a human in the world. And I'll tell you that for even for me, um, or maybe unsurprisingly, but again, it was one of those things that I just didn't really deeply consider until late in the game. Even for me, the collecting of these stories, the, the, the listening to the stories, the, the bearing witness to it, which I feel is my absolute duty, on one hand, has consequences for me uh, in terms of, you know, being aware that there's this whole uh, um, subset of, of other people that I'm sharing the planet with who have a motivation to do awful things. And not only that, they want to film it, they want to record it, and want to upload it and, and disseminate it. I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, there have been times when I've, you know, I'll just candidly tell you and all your listeners uh, that, uh, you know, there have been times when I've struggled with that because, I believe it. I, you know, I'm not someone that wanted to go around thinking about or having a phrase like child sexual exploitation material just roll off my tongue. And yeah. guess what? It does. Yeah. Because you've been, you've been knee deep in it for. Yeah. Uh, the last 10 years and I have and and actually at at remove you know like I'm still even at remove so what about the folks that are seeing it um because of the nature of their work yeah Yeah. that's right yeah and there there is one last thing that I will say about this woman who you told the story about is that how she looks at the world and how she sees or how she used to it seems like she she got over it and now she can shake people's hands. But the the subset of society who is doing that 
when you're looking at it every day, you feel like it's everyone, right? And you That's then right. start to think that everyone does this, but that will cut you off from so many great people out there. The world is filled with wonderful humans. And if you are seeing this every day, you're going to believe that that is what the world is, right? And just like if we're, it's, if we're reading the news every day and we think that the world is going to end, then it's going to be very hard to not continue to think about that. So I, I find it fascinating this woman's story because it shows how susceptible we are and she is one of many uh, that you make the point of and so i i want to change gears a little bit though right now and go into the idea of who should be held responsible for this because i think that it's very hard to point the finger and say okay well you know the social media companies should be held responsible here when they just brush it off like, oh, well, that's uh, an outsourcing problem. We made like <laughs> in our supply chain, we say that only people can do it for every three months out of 12 or whatever. And right. so they have their their uh, regulations on it. And then they claim that they're not at fault. Uh, and so it's like, who should be held responsible? And then even when like one step further than that is if you have someone that is exposed to this every day and there, I've heard stories of people becoming radicalized because they've been watching videos on this. And then all of a sudden they start to think, yeah, well, actually I, I believe what these people are saying. Right. And they get brainwashed in a way. And so if someone becomes radicalized, then whose responsibility is that who is to blame there? Yeah. I mean, obviously, this system that primarily relies on outsourcing does a couple of things. One thing is, and the companies would argue that they need that outsourcing mechanism to just get enough bodies to, for coverage, you know, like that, that they're always scrambling to have enough workers to even do the work because the scale of, of social media continues to increase exponentially. And so, and I imagine that's but, not a long tenure. No, and and there's already not enough people, quote unquote, to fill to fill the, the the need. So, you know, it might be it might be the case that that that's absolutely the case. I mean, let's just take that as a given. But I think there are some other reasons for that outsourcing that you know your question is kind of directing us to, and and one of them is ideological, which is that. Uh, this isn't, you know, from the company's perspective, really the bread and butter of what they're all about. And it's not a pleasant thing. Like they don't want to internalize the work in a way because it's uh, perceived as uh, uh, kind of, tr you know, transitory in nature. It's kind of trans you know, transient. People aren't going to do it forever. They're going to come and go um, because it's auxiliary, because it's uh, support, um, but also because it's like so, it's so salacious and it's such, it's got such a bad, it leaves such a bad taste in one's mouth. Mm -hmm. So I think that 
you know, frankly, more responsibility can be taken by the companies for this. They, they, they actually take very little responsibility, in my opinion, yeah. uh, for, for the outcome. And, you know, if we go back to uh, the, the woman I was speaking about who had worked at MySpace, by the time I met her, it had been like 10 years since she'd worked there. And she was still talking about it in the most vivid of terms wow. uh, to me. Um, so, I mean, I would even say we might take one even bigger, great big step back. And the step back would take us to a collective self-evaluation. You know, this is where I kind of always end up. Like, what is it about human nature? What is it about us that makes us do these harmful things to others and sometimes to ourselves as if that's not bad enough, make, make a spectacle of it, mm-hmm. upload it, want others to see it. You know, not all reasons for uploads are, are that one. You know, there are advocacy reasons that someone might upload something disturbing and try to share it. There are, there are a host of reasons. Historical record comes to mind. But in the absence of those reasons, you know, there is certainly a huge class of people who want to do really disturbing, nefarious, harmful things to others, and then showcase that. And at that level, I think we all bear a collective responsibility. You know, every time we're titillated by a video that straddles the line of bearability, Mm. or every time, um, you know, we choose to spend our attention on these kinds of things rather than in another place. I'm not suggesting throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I'm as big a social media user as anyone else, but I think that the the analogy I would use is that we kind of have the fast food equivalent of social media, the junk mm-hmm. food equi- yeah. equivalent, and we could do a lot better uh, collectively around um, changing our diet to something a yeah. little bit more Maybe some organic. Organic farm to table, slow food situation, you know, like that really is for me, the metaphor like there. And frankly, there's a, there's a market upside for whomever wants to step in and offer that because a lot of us, sure. McDonald's tastes great, but man, every day. Yeah. Gross. Besides me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Gross. Exactly. Yep. It's a great way to go to the grave fast. (laughs) And how do you foresee that? happening because I I wonder like the model and right now where we're at with fast food social media which I think is a great term is the way that we've become accustomed to how do you foresee a a slow food movement of or the organic social media coming forward so that you don't have these potential pitfalls or there's no holes being dug out which just automatically get filled with shit I know, isn't that the isn't that the visual? The like best, that was the, the best metaphor. So on point. Imagine that kicking off my research too. I was like, whoa, okay, I'm on to something. I need to follow this. Um, I mean, that's a great question. I, I would say two things. Uh, the first thing is that, well, I, I would just reiterate what I said. And for anyone listening, here here here's some free advice from someone who never made it rich on the internet gold rushes, but take it for what it's worth. I think there's a huge market upside for those who want to introduce products that 
offer and deliver on a different social media experience, a different kind of experience that looks more like that organic or boutique or niche or tailored or humane, humanely sized even, right? Because scale is a big part of the problem here. A humanely sized experience where, you know, maybe it's not the best idea ever and in the best interest of everyone to have 2 billion users on the same platform. Maybe that's just untenable. Or maybe it inherently introduces problems that are intractable at that scale. So I think one thing is, you know, to encourage like a, a bigger marketplace for, for uh, kind of niche experiences um, or more boutique or tailored experiences, smaller, smaller experiences, slower experiences, experiences where also where content moderation rather than be treating treated as a secret and as like kind of a dirty little secret could be brought into the fore and be recast as something like, um, you know, subject matter experts or uh, guides or docents or curators of sites, you know, people who can lead you, people you can trust, uh, people whose, whose expertise and opinions are, are valued and valuable rather than behind the screen, behind the scenes, covered in NDAs, covered in um, uh, kind of industrial setups that put them at very far removed from everybody else involved in the production chain. All of those things, there are they're right there at hand if somebody wants to reach out and grab it. I think also there's labor organizing on the part of the workers where they could start demanding better conditions uh, for themselves and that others in solidarity with them could do that. And that would yield, in my opinion, a positive net effect for all of us as users as well. Um, those are two things that come to mind. Um, I think the third, the third thing, it's, it's a little more abstract, but it has to do with the fact that, you know, if we look at, again, chronological time, and we look at the Facebook era, or we look at the social media in general era, it is, what, 15 years max? Yeah. Really? If we were to kind of sit down and calculate where this has been a primary medium for people in a very mainstream way that to me is like a blip that is like a nothing inconsequential in terms of time inconsequential in terms of human time even mm -hmm. so that suggests to me that even though we feel like we're locked into these modalities and these uh these norms that have come up and de been developed alongside the the, the major players and in the social media space and their platforms. Actually, if we were to be honest, that hasn't been that long that they've been dominating. And therefore it suggests to me that the right innovators, the right inventive minds, the right creativity, all of those things could be put together to reimagine or imagine something wholly different. This is not the only game in town. I think that's the biggest secret that they've got is that it's actually very early days and a very precarious kind of environment that is predicated on us continuing to engage without making any demands on the platforms. And, you know, if we were to harness that power collectively, both the power to kind of speak back 
but also the power to use our own imaginations and creativity together with each other to build something else or build many other things maybe, which might be really the way to go. I think um, there could be many, many forms of what we call social media. And uh, people could find those that fit best for them in a, in a way that works way better than just making one giant 10 and asking everyone to come inside. Yeah. I really appreciate your insights. I have one last Thanks. question for you. And sure. it's the one that we give everybody at the end. And it is, Sarah, are you a robot? Uh, no, but uh, wouldn't a robot lie about that? <laughs> I'm going to tell you what, a robot would have done a better job with their hair today. <laughs> So for all those who are listening in, you missed out. You, you could have seen it. It's, it. it's not that bad, but I feel like a robot would have been a little bit more on point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed talking to you. There are so many nuggets of information here and it's uh, a tough subject to yeah. talk about, to think about, to bring up. I know I can only imagine, really I empathize with those who are in the trenches right now and doing this on the day-to-day -day and how they are going to come out of it. And hopefully, like you said, I think this is a great point, like an easy win for what they're doing is unionize or start demanding better uh, maybe psychology exams every X amount of time from the employers or uh, demanding that they get warned that there's a potentially very, very explicit and very harmful image or video that is about to come up. So it's not like it just shocks them out of nowhere. Right. There are small wins that I don't see that far out of reach uh, that could hopefully help but it is something that we need to talk about. And I think that I really think that it is amazing work that you're doing, bringing this book into the world to shine a light on it. And so I thank you for that. Well, thanks for your interest. I mean, I think I agree with you. Like I don't cavalierly recommend the book to everyone for the reason you said, it's not like you can be like, yeah, it's going to be a fun late read. No, it's tough. Yeah. Sometimes it's tough. Um, but I think we all owe it to ourselves and to, um, to, to our communities around us. I mean, in, in whatever way that is defined by you to kind of be informed about the costs uh, of our reliance upon these, these forms that are new to us, that are new to the social fabric. And we're learning all kinds of ways that they have impact in many, in many cases, unwanted impact or uh, impact that has some downsides. And I think only until we, we can really honestly have the full picture, uh, we won't really be able to make sound decisions, much less push back or make demands on the companies that deliver these products. So my hope is that the book will go to raising the awareness about the incredible work that people are doing on our behalf, uh, which is the work of content moderation by the commercial content moderators. 
but also that we uh, collectively gain a better understanding of what the costs are of our complete and utter adoption of social media into every aspect of our lives. And this is one of those costs. Beautifully put. Thanks again, Thanks. Sarah. And take care, everyone who's listening. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye.